everyone, welcome to another installment of GoTo's Live Ask Me Anything sessions. Uh, my name is Adele. I'm a software engineer at Trifoc Amsterdam. I'm really, really happy to be hosting this session today, uh, featuring none other than author, speaker, and phrase corner coiner Kevlin Henney. Uh, hi, Kevlin. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Adele. Great to be here. Well, great to be back home where I always am, but uh, connected across the world, which is nice. Wonderful. And one of the perks of these times, I guess, is it's well, relatively easy to have people from all over the world uh, in your lounge room or, or your office. So you might know Kevlin as the editor of books such as 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know um, and from catchy phrases such as less code equals less bugs. Um, maybe you've been lucky enough to have joined one of his training courses or even potentially have him consult at your company. Uh, if that's not enough, he's also a skilled orator and we're absolutely thrilled to have him speaking at the GoTo Amsterdam conference, uh, which is planned for the 15th to 18th of June. So June is actually a super busy month for the GoTo team with three on-site conferences planned, um, all with a limited number of tickets to maximize uh, the safety of all participants involved. So if you can't make it to Amsterdam, there's GoTo Copenhagen on June 7 to 8, and there's also GoTo Aarhus on the 10th to 11th of June. So lastly, before we move on, uh, we do have uh, some more AMA sessions and online events, uh, including a masterclass with Kevlin coming up. So please just follow us on Twitter at GoToCon uh, to stay up to date. So the plan is we will start with the pre-submitted questions, of which we have a few, and we will pick up some live questions as we go. So what I'm going to do is start off really nice and simply, Kevlin, with the classic interview question. Uh, tell us about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, look, first of all, I'll start with where am I from? Um, where, am I, where am I contacting you from? I'm uh, based in Bristol in the UK. Um, I'm looking out the window at the moment. Um, it's wet and it's grey. Um, that was one of those, um, you know, that's really not news. Although I will say this morning the sun was shining to the point I actually had to close the blinds. Uh, but people now just think I'm making that up. Uh, it is currently grey and wet. Um, so I work for myself. I've done so, oh, I don't know, uh, 21 years now. Um, so I've worked for myself for that period of time. I do training. I do workshops. Um, I do bits of consultancy, writing, reviewing, all this kind of stuff. And that takes me across code as well as people, I guess. That's uh, that's uh, where I'm, in, I'm most interested. The, the practices, the more timeless things, I'm very interested, obviously, in certain things that happen now. But anything with a version number, I'm probably not the best person to keep up, uh, up to date with. Um, uh, as I discovered many years ago, it's the things that are consistent across these, not the things I can look up in the docs that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm kind of interested in what underpins it all. Turns out that human beings have not evolved that much in the last couple of decades when it comes to software development. We are still incredibly human. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of me. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, software, of course, is a technical discipline, but, but more and more, as long as humans write code, uh, which I hope is for a very long time yet, uh, there's always going to be human problems involved and always trying to, you know, problem solve from, from that level in a, in a way that, that humans can uh, relate to each other efficiently and also to write uh, code that's, that's friendly to both our future selves and also to our colleagues. 
So what I'll do is I'll just jump into the pre-submitted questions now. Uh, we have one from Ian. Uh, he has a question about um, hardware. So he says, how can I manage agile software development versus uh, with not so agile hardware? That's kind of a good question. And, I, uh, and that, that's interesting because I, I don't know the exact kind of hardware because one of the funny things that I experienced at a company a few years ago that I was visiting was um, they said they had a problem is that their software people are less agile than their hardware people. So that was, in other words, there's a kind of an assumption here. Um, it's like the hardware people had actually got a relatively stable approach to updating their hardware and they basically had a fairly consistent value stream. Um, but it's the software people who were struggling um, uh, to, to kind of keep up. Um, now, obviously, that's not true everywhere, but it does highlight the fact that there's an assumption about what is the rate of change, and it's not consistent. Um, when it comes to how can I manage the agile, agile software development versus not so agile hardware, uh, it does depend mostly, let's talk about people, um, comes back to some of the people stuff. Um, half of it's about communication. So the question is, what is it that's not so agile? It's not so much the hardware. In many cases, it's what people are planning to do with the hardware or when they're expecting things, or even how they communicate. That might be actually the problem. Um, the communication is, is not flowing. So it may turn out that half of what people are experiencing is actually a communication problem. It's a people problem. And the process of hardware may not have shifted enough, and the people are still kind of communicating in batch kind of like communicate stop leave it a few months communicate stop leave it a few months so that that's half the problem it's not actually so much necessarily the hardware although i could be wrong here um, but in some cases it's not as much the hardware as it is the culture around the hardware but the other thing is with agile development the idea is well in what way are you agile in other words what are the bits that can be uh, more fluid um, in other words, rather than seeking a kind of a, a stock option uh, that is just like, right, here's Agile by the book, um, let's just do that. There's a case of like, well, hang on, um, what is it that we want to get out of this? I mean, no, it's not a good objective for somebody to really say we are going to be Agile. Why? Because everybody else is or because I heard it's it, it, it's a thing we should do. It's like, well, what do you want to get out of it? And And look at it like that. Treat it as a problem-solving approach. And that, I think, is half where the answer lies. It is a it is a problem to be solved. If there is a problem, how do we do that? Um, and that, I think, is where uh, the answer lies. And it may actually be quite unique. Um, one of the early earlier Scrum books that Ken Schwaber wrote, uh, it wasn't the first Scrum book, it was around 2005 or so, he talked a lot about doing this with hardware and managing a Scrum team from a hardware sense. And I think that's quite, that's the point is that you, your solutions will be different um, and they will be adaptive, which is what they should be. So in that sense, the interface between an agile and a hardware group is probably along the same lines. So there's no fixed answer, but it's it's kind of yours to discover. Great, thanks for diving uh, in there. And so you so you mentioned that really it's, it's a lot of the times it's, it's a communication problem and we sort of need to take our uh, perspective a little bit deeper than, hey, let's just take Agile off the shelf and apply it. So in that context, yeah. Would you say that agile software development is dead? Because uh, uh, Dufford, one of our uh, attendees, would like to know. Yeah, right. Uh, so, yeah, is agile software development dead yet? Well, the question is, um, it depends what you mean by that phrase. Um, I mean, 
death of a process that's kind of an interesting one I've, there's a play the death of a salesman um i guess we're not talking about that um how does a process die that's kind of interesting does it have a does that actually mean anything because is waterfall dead no um you know it's 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 still practiced in a lot of places but the other thing is what is agile software development for some people it's a branding the branding has suffered uh it, it's been pushed it's been hyped and all the rest of it and it's like no it's it's definitely being hyped and is very much alive perhaps not in a way that we would like um is agile as was intended by the original manifesto which is 20 years ago this month is that still alive yeah absolutely i don't think it's ever going to die i mean you can call it something different what's happened is what we've seen is this is the curious thing because i find myself sometimes criticizing elements of agile i'm not a big fan of certification schemes i'm very skeptical of some of the approaches to scaling agile um, they answer the wrong question uh, the question is not how do we scale up the question is how do you scale down instead of thinking like how do we scale it up Scaling has two directions, uh, and people only think there's one. So I'm very skeptical at certain times, but at other times, it's a case of like, it's been rampantly successful. And you can tell that by all the people saying, we're not agile. And then you look at what they're doing. Oh, you DevOps people, you're doing a nice one. You've really embodied the agile principles incredibly well and taken all those ideas from the late 90s and really put them into practice and are running with that. Um, the lean people who've decided to distance themselves Wow, that's really agile. The stuff that you so hard. So, in other words, it, it's kind of it's successful um, in in ways that uh, go beyond the original branding. And in that sense, I don't imagine it will ever die. Um, we just call it different things every few years, and people will specialize. People tend to focus on one aspect or another, um, and and you know maybe it's more technically focused, or maybe it's more business focused. And people will give it different names, and they will try and differentiate themselves because that's what human beings do. And it will be rampantly successful. So in its you know it's very much a whole situation of phoenix, um, phoenix being born from the ashes type thing. Um, but uh, yeah, yet no. Um, when we run out of software or humans doing software, then it will be dead. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, we... we oh, well, yeah, I've just seen um, I've just seen what David said uh, in, uh, uh, in the comments. I was thinking more like XP. Ah, you see, now you see. That's what people normally mean. They not, or rather, not XP. What they normally mean is they have something specific in mind. Um, when they say, I'm going to use a very generic term, agile, but actually I've got something very specific in mind. And extreme programming, let's talk about extreme programming just for a moment. Um, if we go through the, um, is it dead? I think in that sense, people don't talk about XP very much, except every now and then I see somebody saying, oh, you know, we should bring back XP or, hey, I miss XP or whatever. And that, that was kind of the one that triggered everybody um, and triggering in, in the emotional sense as well, because it was the late 1990s, Kent Beck and folks came along and said, here's this. They chose a polarizing and provocative name, you know, for their development approach, extreme programming, not hey, here's a bunch of decent ideas. We're going to throw them all together or moderately successful software development ideas Take you know, with the dials turned up to 11. Um, no, we're going to allude to extreme sports, which makes people think, you know, oh, man, this is high risk and highly dangerous, which one sounds sexy and two is completely wrong because nobody wants to hear that their software development is high risk. I don't want to, you know, you had lots of people recoiling from that just as many other people were running towards it going, oh, this sounds so cool. Um, you know, maybe I can program like they do in the movies because as my kids were disappointed to discover, programming is nothing like it is in the movies. Um, you know, it, it, you don't necessarily have like 
techno blasting out in the background, multiple screens, uh, the screen project, you know, the images on the screen projected onto you and like, you know, just minutes to do all kinds of whatever. It's disappointing. You know, you look at a room full of successful software developers and it is indistinguishable from a people, you know, a room full of people looking at uh, pictures of cats on the internet. You know, that, that that's what successful software development looks like. So th the point there is for some people, it's like, hey, at last I get to work in something that sounds cool, extreme programming. Mm. Um, but for other people, it was a polarizing term. It's just like, it's, it's provocative. It sounds high risk, which is kind of like, that's really not a good way to sell it, but it does make people pay attention. Now, XP came along and said, Here's all these ideas, some of which were kind of a bit radical, some of which weren't. Um, and so let's look at the success. So continuous integration. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of a big deal. That That's XP, okay? Um, pair programming. You know what? Not everybody does it. But these days, the conversation pairing and mobbing about whether it should be done at all, that conversation is dead. Um, it's if That's passed into the mainstream. Um, the idea of... Um, self-organizing teams we're not i don't think we're where we want to be with that but it's a respectable idea the idea of working much more closely with the customer um we could reduce the distance further but the distance is a lot lot uh, uh, smaller um the idea of short iterations um yeah that's kind of in there as well um all of these little bits and pieces the uh, test-driven development is not necessarily as mainstream as it could be but people talk about it without getting into an argument. Uh, developers testing, however, oh my goodness, that's a huge change. That's been so, that's just become normal. The idea that developers should test their own code. Um, when XP came along, people weren't worried about test first. They said, well, should be developers even be doing any of this? Don't worry about writing a test case first. So in other words, it has been, in some ways it's been, it's a shame that people aren't out there advocating XP more. Um, it comes with a set of technical practices, which I think are, are still highly valuable, really focus things. And we've kind of kind of, kind of shelled out the husk, if you like, a little bit in the agile space. It's like, oh, well, let's leave the technical practices out and just talk about the kind of like the management style practices and business view. And I would like to see more of that conversation brought back in, which is why all these other little sub-communities and movements have sprung up, uh, DevOps, software craft, and so on. These are all kind of like, the shelled out version coming to life um, uh, in its own sense. But in another sense, XP has been surprisingly and astonishingly successful because half of what made it extreme is not really extreme at all. It really is just kind of like, yeah, stuff we do or stuff we do, we, uh, we've kind of are thinking of doing or are doing something like it. Um, so in that sense, it, it's not so much dead as mainstream part of it. Hmm, interesting, that one to think about. Uh, is it dead or is it just mainstream? And uh, I mean, if you're a purist, once it's mainstream, it's maybe dead, at least in its beautiful form. Depends who you uh, ask. Uh, yeah, it's like the band, it's like, you know, you're really into some band and then they hit the charts and it's just like, well, no, they were cool. I knew them when they were cool. I don't want to be associated with that because they're now yeah. they're a pop band. There's a little <laughs> bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're going to go a little bit away from the philosophy and into maybe the more uh, hands-on technical aspect. So Isabel wanted to know, um, what's the best way to avoid using switch statements in your code? And how would you go about refactoring code mm. that uses a lot of them, um, not just in factory methods, but everywhere in the code? Yeah, that's a really good question. That The whole thing about switch statements is, Switch statements, um, they, they solve a very particular problem. And I'm going to leave aside the original um, 
C switch statement and talk about more general generic case statement because the C switch statement is a is a work of art in in a, in in all the different ways that can possibly be interpreted. Uh, there are some very strange things you can do with it. But the way that switch statements manifest themselves in a lot of languages now and in various case variations, um, going back to the original kind of Pascal stuff. It's, it's kind of attractive because you get to say, oh, look, here's this case, here's this case, this case. And it stops me doing if, else, if, else, if, else, if, else, if, and so on. But the problem there is that what can start out as a good idea can start growing. The, the, the convenience enum you had suddenly becomes this monster enum with 40, 50, and it keeps on growing cases. And suddenly what started off as a really economic and simple way of expressing, hey, here's, here's four things, four options, fits nicely on the screen becomes this kind of own, it's monster. And the problem is it be, it has this very predictable maintenance path. Oh, we've got a new case. Okay, go and add. And even worse, where that case starts springing up, where you see the same structure recurring around the code. And that's kind of like an invitation to say, what are we going to do about that? This is, this is a recurrence. Um, it's an explicitness that is now getting tedious to read, and it's now gone from being easy to error prone. So... My kind of answer to this one is uh, surprisingly hasn't changed very much over the years. And uh, a lot of people immediately jump on the idea of like, hey, let's refactor to um, subclasses, you know, create class hierarchy, polymorphism, all the rest of it. I, I'm a bit more old school. I, my, my first impression is, hmm, okay, uh, I need a table. I need, I need something to look up because that's what we're doing. And maybe I'm just looking up a value or maybe I'm looking up a behavior. Um, and that, uh, I just mentioned C earlier on, that's where I really learned that practice. And that has never left me. Um, I actually wrote a blog recently, so um, uh, which is called Out of Control, which is, well, I call it a blog post, but it's more like an essay. I can't remember how many thousands of words it was. But I went on a real tour around this kind of whole space. And that was a, a piece of an example code. I, there were lots, lots of things to demonstrate there. But it's part of a theme of like, well, why don't we create a table to look up in? Um, it, and that, in many cases, a switch statement can be replaced by a table, either a table of values or a table of behaviors. And that whole idea of behaviors is a lot less contentious now um, than it used to be, because a lot more languages have got um, uh, have got uh, equivalent of Lambda expressions uh, and the like. So I can simply just say, oh, it's this case, go and look that up. Um, and so that is, I think that's, a, that's for me, is my normal first thought. If I suddenly discover I've got similar switch statements and I've got two variant behaviors, then that starts looking like maybe I need an interface and some classes, but I don't jump to the subclassing solution first of all, which is if you look at the refactoring, the original refactoring book by Martin Fowler, that's kind of like replace switch statement um, with uh, polymorphism. The theme of that I still hold. Um, in other words, the polymorphism is done through an individual functional abstraction, but you don't necessarily need a whole class-based object, or rather, you know, the class already exists, it's something simple, take this, return that. Um, but it's the idea of polymorphism as a level of indirection for behavior, yes, but specifically needing a class, no, he was speaking a little to the limitations of the language he was working in at the time, um, uh, which uh, was Java. So I would basically say, yeah, um, Think about it, first of all, is a table-driven approach um, appropriate here? Um, then more broadly, a uh, polymorphic approach. Uh, the other thing is with switch statements, um, 
there's sometimes a question of like, well, what is going on here? Why, why is this like this? Perhaps there's a different partitioning. Perhaps we're even looking at the problem wrong. The problem needs to be turned inside out, which is sometimes what the object model will give you. Uh, but that's my that's my kind of my starting point with that, and uh, tending to look at that almost. And I've kind of got used to seeing that, and uh, across different languages, although you know, in some languages this is easier to do than others. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's the way I would definitely um, uh, uh, approach it. But that idea, if you start seeing recurrence across a code base of the same switch structure, then that but different, slightly different behaviors in it, that kind of says, oh, this is actually polymorphism good old-fashioned class-based hierarchies, um, that might be the best place to look. Yeah, uh, during your answer there, I'm kind of reminded of uh, sealed classes in Kotlin with a, a when statement. It's actually kind of a nice, let's say, modern take on your, your table approach uh, and also makes it a, a lot cleaner with, with, with exhaustion. So any Kotlin yeah. developers out there, there's, there's a, a potential uh, uh, option for you. Oh, um, and also for you in Java, Coming seal classes coming to you in Java as well. So if you're a Java programmer, that's kind of in the pipeline. Um, so yeah, that's the point. There's, I mean, it, basically what those are is a bounded. It's a bounded derivation set. Um, in other words, it's, we we've, we've said it's not an open idea. It's actually it's a closed set, um, and uh, and and that's now you know there's that, that idea. I think I first came across in 1990, 1991. <laughs> so. It's really nice that we're playing catch up at the moment, but you know, yeah. Yeah, well, look, as my mother said, she may not have been talking about programming, she was talking about fashion, but what she said was there's nothing new under the sun. And her mother and her mother that. heard that. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, very yeah. similar, we're seeing that play out today. So uh, we're gonna hear from Isabel uh, again, because we're still, she has another sort of quite technical question. Um, mm, yeah. She heard that using functional and imperative programming together should be avoided. Uh, for example, calling the for each inside a stream in Java. What's your opinion or take on that? Is it correct? I think, well, first of all, I think we need to differentiate because there's a lot of terms that are kind of competing for people's attention at the moment. And mm. there's a lot of sets of understanding. So, um, so when we talk about programming paradigms, um, some people tend to look at it as functional versus imperative, and that's actually that's actually the wrong level. It's imperative versus declarative. Functional is a kind of declarative. So, in other words, we need to be comparing like with like. Um, and declarative also covers uh, logic-based programming. Uh, it covers non-Turing complete things, uh, pattern matching, and things like that uh, as well. So, really, anything where you're just basically saying, "Look, here is a structure, and that is enough." I don't need to say anything more about how it does it. In other words, I'm not um, requiring uh, anybody to be imperative about it to instruct. That's it's a, it's free of instruction is is one way of looking at it. And function is simply one of many approaches. There's a very there's a wide variety of declarative approaches now at the moment because functional programming has kind of had a I, I think it's kind of peaked, um, but a few years ago it kind of really was growing in people's um, awareness. Uh, which is, you know, about about time. Um, it was growing in people's awareness, but unfortunately, it's devoured all of the other declarative things. When whenever anybody sees anything declarative now, they call it functional. It's like no, 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 no. It's, that one's actually already a paradigm on its own. So, and a lot of the stuff. So, the the thing here is, um, what is it that we want to focus on here? Because most languages are not single paradigm; they are a paradigm blend. Um, and if you think of about if you think of a paradigm um, 
more rather than a pure view. Uh, paradigms like a mixing desk, uh, or paradigms are like mixing desks. There's different qualities, and there's different amounts that each fader or each dial can be. And what we find is that paradigms are not mutually exclusive. So, for example, when people say immutable, uh, immutable data, that's not functional programming. Oh, sure, functional programming does that, but functional programming is not the only game in town. And immutable data is actually a very important part of reference-based object orientation. Um, uh, that one goes back decades. The thing is that the, the mutability setting is, is not all the way near the top as it is for functional, but it's still not all the way at the bottom. Whereas for procedural code, it is much closer to the bottom. So the thing here is that we want to, the, the reason this um, point about um, mixing styles, you're always mixing styles, particularly if you're working in Java, you can't do functional programming in Java. So anybody out there who thinks you can, I'm sorry, you can borrow functional programming ideas, you can have your style influenced. Um, but Java is not, and I cannot imagine it ever will be. Um, all they did in Java 8 was add um, streams, which is data flow programming. Um, and uh, which clearly has some compositional relationship to some of the functional ideas and some and many functional languages make that easier. Uh, and it also um, had added lambdas, which are a feature that are common to many languages. It's not unique to functional programming. Um, so for example, the Algol 68 programming language um, had, you could pass around free procedures. It's one of the most procedural languages I've ever seen. Um, highly influential, people don't use it, but they normally work in languages that have had an influence. So all of you out there, if you've ever wondered where the void keyword came from, that was Algol 68. But you could pass freestanding procedures around, which these days people call lambdas, even though they're absolutely not lambdas. You know, Java lambdas I, allow me to do side effects. They don't obey the three laws of a lambda. The one thing Java lambdas are not is lambdas, but damn, they are convenient. They allow me to pass little pieces of code around freestanding as if they were objects. So in Java 8, Java became more object oriented. It may become a bit more functional, but it it finally became an object-oriented language. So 2014, if you want to know when Java became object-oriented. Now, what's the real issue with mixing mixing these ideas here? Well, it's actually the side effects stuff. It's the imperative, the imperative bit about side effects, making changes to things, changing the state whilst you are in a pipeline. That's the bit you want to avoid um, because you don't know that, that, that the pipeline should be relatively stateless. It should be a, a series of transformations. Otherwise, you start depending on sequencing, which you can't guarantee. And there are some surprises there for you. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather program without surprises. So that's kind of where that advice fits. Whereas actually we find in other cases, we're able to do much more, a much more natural paradigm blend. As I said, it's a mixing desk, you know, oh, let's turn this up a little bit because this is how we work in Java and that's a little more idiomatic, um, but I'm borrowing an idea from this paradigm and I'll let that influence me. So um, it, it, it's not quite as black and white as initially a initially appears, but if you can kind of find what is it that people are trying to say here, it's normally to do with that. There's an interaction between these two models of flow. One, historically, control flow with state, and the other, data flow, which kind of assumes a much more declarative approach. If you try and mix the two, it gets messy. So what strikes me, this is a question from me personally. I mean, there's got to be some perks to this gig, right? So I'm going to ask you a question from me. Um, so what strikes me about your work is that you seem to pay as much attention to history and literature uh, as you do programming. And you mentioned drum, so music as well. Um, hmm. How did you go about pursuing such diverse interests and then kind of melding them into some sort of 
not one, but to sort of cross-reference each other. And um, how did you end up in programming if you love the humanities so much? Oh, that's a really good question. And, and I'd love to give you a, yeah, here is the plan. I had a, <laughs> no, I absolutely didn't. And um, and it's it's mostly random, it's, it's mostly accident or coincidence. I like seeing connections. I think that, that is, um, one of the most interesting things. I mean, uh, it, it, seeing connections between things. Oh, I know this, and I know that. Wait a minute, they're the same thing, or um, you know, they have something in common that I never noticed. Um, and some of that has come through time. As as time goes by, you get to see more connections. As you talk to more people um, or read more random things, it's kind of one of those things. If you're paying a little more attention, sometimes you start seeing parallels. Uh, but sometimes it's actually just something that arises out of personal interest and that idea that I don't um, I don't kind of firewall or sandbox my interests. Um, so I'm quite happy to let one thing bleed into another. Um, so, you know, years ago I got, got into photography and so I started using photographs in my talks because it suddenly made the talk was much more enjoyable for me if I had something that I had put in there that made it more interesting for me, or I'd quote various things, or I'd kind of say, that's a point that somebody outside of software has made that I think is relevant to us. Um, when we talk about things, there's aspects of philosophy, for example, which are kind of relevant to software, for example. We are, uh, so, so a friend, Alan O'Callaghan, once described software as applied philosophy. Um, software development is applied philosophy, just as we have kind of like applied mathematics and applied physics and apply. It's applied philosophy um, because we uh, we are what we're doing is we're we're trying to figure out the nature of knowledge, how to structure it. That's what you're doing in a, in a in a code base. You are structuring knowledge, and you have a number of different choices about how you want to present it. That's those are our paradigm choices, if you like, and. Um, you know, I could write it all in assembler, um, uh, but probably I couldn't because actually that's too much. That's too complex for a human. So we have these dis discussions, these debates, these different movements, these different schools of thought. It's just the history of philosophy all over again. Um, uh, but we're trying to apply it and we're trying to make it executable. It's not just pontificating. It's like, no, we're going to make something real out of this. So I think there's a, if it's the study of knowledge, then it turns out that we're doing some great stuff now, but somebody's been here before and they might have a couple of insights on this. And logic kind of, logic, philosophy, mathematics, all of these kind of drift into each other. And we're really now seeing uh, the, the rising awareness of ethics. as there. So it's kind of like we're ticking all the boxes for all the different schools of philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but also for history, as you pointed out, that I think there is... I think we're very bad at our own history. I think often people, every discipline has a history um, and it depends whether or not it is taught and how it is taught. You know, if you, if you study um, English literature, um, you, you have a very historical perspective there. Um, if you study architecture, you are also given uh, building architecture, um, you are given a, a historical perspective. Curiously mm. enough, that's not the case with software architecture. And yet we see people reinventing the same solutions again and again, um, which are reminiscent of ideas or problems solved in the past. Um, and perhaps we shouldn't be reinventing those. Perhaps we should be borrowing knowingly saying, ah, I've seen this before. That, that's kind of what got me into the patterns movement originally is this, I've seen this before. Perhaps we should document this and let other people know. But there's also this other idea that um, sometimes people say, oh, well, software development is very young. So it doesn't really have much of a history. It's like, 
software development runs the world and it, it, it is older than most people who are doing it. I'm gonna, I'm not, I was going to say all, but actually there are a few exceptions mm -hmm. uh, depending on where we want to put the starting line. It's, it's older than a lot of other professions that we can't explain to our parents. Um, yeah. Software development is is there. The, the, the whole it's young. I don't buy that at all. I don't. Uh, that doesn't wash with me for a, for a second. Um, but then it, it reminds us there's two things. There's growing up and there's growing old. You, one is mandatory. The other is optional. I think yeah. we need to do a little bit of growing up. We need to be more aware of the fact we have this incredibly rich history, um, mm. and we can. Some of it's just geekily interesting but some of it is actually oh there is a lesson here that i can apply in what i'm doing and when we talk about programming languages honestly there's not a lot that's new in the programming language space we're just doing remixes and that's not to say that the remixes aren't interesting and the blends are not new and fascinating in one sense they provide novelty but really there are no you know there are no exciting new ideas in actually the programming space there's just simply what's exciting is the combination that somebody offers us i mean you mentioned kotlin before one of the things people rave about is in kotlin is coroutines coroutines were invented in 1958 by melvin conway the same guy that we talk about conway's law and that was that was that was that was much later 1968 you know so so the point here is that everyone's getting excited about coroutines loads of languages have been adding them over the last five years i dealt with coroutines all oh, mumble mumble years ago mm. and then they kind of went out of fashion they were just on their way out when i kind right. of like oh okay and it's oh that's gone so cooperative multitasking is dead we're all doing preemptive um and and now it's it's like we're revisiting the past and i've we can actually quote all the original coroutine papers and all their motivation pretty much still stands. So I think if we had a slightly better sense of our own history, um, if you like a liberal arts for software, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of linguistics of it, the history of it, um, and the, the philosophy and the reasoning of it, I think that would make for a more rounded approach to development, probably also more enjoyable. I, I think that, I think it should be fun. And I think we've I think we squeeze the fun out of it um, a little bit too much. Yeah, I think one of the worst things you can do as a, a younger or a junior developer is kind of ignore the opinions of people that may have a couple of grey hair or wrinkles because the lessons you can really learn from them of, oh, I was doing that in the 90s. For example, I saw Garth Gilmore uh, in the chat here. Uh, he's coming up for an AMA, I think the next one or the one after. Yeah. Here's a great talk about lessons from the 1990s that we forgot along with his colleague uh, Amon. And there's some really good stuff in that. And people like me, like I've only been programming for two years and myself, I do feel like I am missing out a lot by not having that history. And I'm almost thirsty for it because it mm. really does, uh, provide context for why things are the way that they are today and for me personally being a bit selfish again context is really everything it's it's really hard to draw that model without it i think you're right i think that, that i think you you hit the nail on the head there context because the point is if we're going to do something new let us understand the context of what where we're starting from and sometimes we we hold ourselves back by not understanding that. And exactly as you say, why is something like it is? The minute you know why it is, that honestly makes it a lot easier. It doesn't mean you have to like something, and you know, that, whether that's a legacy language, legacy code, whatever. But when you understand how it got there, you have now have a mental model. You, you don't have to learn this as a bunch of separate uh, individual facts. They actually form, to, form a whole. 
And again, let's go back to that selfish perspective. It takes a lot less energy when you understand the intention. Oh, that's how it all works. So if that's true, then the following should be true. And now, I, yeah. So in other words, there's that idea. It, it gives a dimensionality, a richness to the subject. But I think I think we're swept up in the nowness of technology that actually a lot of stuff. Um, I did a talk last week, um, uh, OOP Digital. So that normally happens in Munich. Um, with my my uh, uh, my uh, co-presenter Frank Bushman. He was in Munich, so at least one of us was uh, actually there. And we were talking about the next thirty years of development because the OOP conference it was having its thirtieth anniversary this year. And we we previously did a thirty years of object orientation. Frank and I have done a talk nineteen sixty eight stuff we yeah stuff we knew in nineteen sixty eight that has now come to pass. In other words, and it turns out that most of what has happened. Is, has been enabled by um, not necessarily new ideas. The ideas were out there, but we've been able to explore them because in many cases, hardware has allowed us to. Um, you know, if you if you try to do microservices in the 1990s, yeah, good luck to you. People will laugh at you because the performance is just not there. Oh, you're going to fork a process for every single thing that you're doing. Yeah, right. Tell you what, I'm just going to go and you, I'm going to just go and do threads or really fast event handling over here, and I'll see you on the other side of this when your project fails to actually go anywhere. Mm. The point there is, hardware has enabled these ideas. It's not the ideas weren't around. It's that every idea has its time, and now we've been able to explore these and we get much richer knowledge out of them. But that idea of understanding that you know the, every idea has a history. Very few things are just novel. I, I think that that really is the bit that would make the subject more dimensional. I think that would it's more enjoyable that way as well. Yeah, and I think you know it's really hard. I think especially in technical disciplines to find a history teacher that makes you love history. So I think that's also a, a little bit of a, a roadblock. And I think uh, especially as uh, adult learners, that we all have to be mm. as practicing engineers, we can take that on ourselves and not rely on some crusty, crusty old history professor to, to spew it onto us. Um, yeah. Because it's much more interesting just finding it yourself. Um, so now that we've gone back to philosophy, let's just stay here for a little bit. So related to our discussion before about agile development, we did get some questions coming through today. Um, so I'm reading this one live here. So do you think more projects utilize the use of agile development than waterfall even today? Or do you think it's more waterfall than we care to admit? Yeah, this is a really interesting one because it's there's there's what people are doing, there's what they say they're doing. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if you actually ask me about programming paradigms and somebody said, what's the most popular paradigm? And I said, well, it's probably still procedural, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and, but people are doing procedural programming um, in languages that are suited for objects, languages that are suited for functional and so on. It's kind of like, if you like, that's the baseline. Um, um, but what people say they're doing, oh, that's a different story. And again, you know, there's, um, there's the question when we talk about waterfall versus agile. Um, what are we including in the agile? Is it just me saying I'm doing that? Am I, am I doing Scrum? Am I doing Safe? Or are we actually refining what we're doing? Do we have relatively autonomous teams um, that manage their own work, um, that own their technical practices, that adapt their technical practices and they go, oh, let's just try this or do that? If we're, if we're looking at, if you like, that aspect of agility, that's always I think that's always going to be in a minority because what you're looking at there is... Um, is a kind of a, a a pedigree. It's kind of it's kind of like a, a it's it's a, it's an ability. It's a level um, that perhaps many uh, company cultures um, aren't able to foster. 
Uh, and in fact, sometimes sometimes people don't even know what they're missing. So for a lot of people, agile is just um, we do a sprint every two weeks, and that's kind of it. That's what they've heard. And, yeah. and there's no kind of like so nobody's ever sitting there going like, I wonder why it's called agile. I wonder what that word actually means in English. Um, and and then realizing, you know, well, you know, we do this thing called agile, but I'll tell you what, it's not really agile. It's kind of like that's where you get people like me stepping in, going like, yeah, that's not what was meant. Um, you know that. In other words, there's we see the same with object orientation as a paradigm because that's the what that's the paradigm whose arc I've followed most closely because it closely matches my own um, time in the industry. Um, I, I'm, I can proudly announce that I was a Fortran program at the beginning of all of this. So if you want to talk about procedural programming, I know about it. Um, and, <laughs> I, I, and I know about legacy languages and all the rest of it. But the the arc there is a lot of the things, it's, it's funny because um, I find that when I'm looking at certain things and people are complaining about, oh, objects, yeah, blah, and I look at that going like, well, that's, that's not really object-oriented. What you've got is a bunch of managers there. You've got these anemic domain objects. Your behavior is very procedural, but now you put it in these big modular blocks, and 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 it's just like, yeah, you're using objects. And we're kind of seeing the same thing happen with with functions. People, uh, you know, and and uh, and functional hybrid languages and so on. What people are actually doing versus what they could be doing is is kind of different. Um, you know, I, I kind of sometimes joke that. There's a lot of pragmatic FP out there, and where the word pragmatic means not. So yeah, we're doing pragmatic agile. In other words, not agile. We're doing pragmatic functional programming. Yeah, actually, it's just procedural with a with a little more functional composition. But yeah, we've got pragmatic side effects and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it's just it's a it's a big mess. And anybody who got into it for the original reasons or has kind of been busy looking at oh what does that actually mean they're going to be hugely disappointed by what happens in practice so um in that sense i think um we're not doing waterfall was never something that people really did it's something they always faked there are places that did it it's mostly what people said they were doing and then they had to work around the edges and the, the degree to which they worked around it was generally the kind of uh, the, the the interesting thing there the two process model I, I was familiar with that working in one company is like here's what we say we're doing here's what we're actually doing and we publish this one but actually do this one um which i guess was in one sense quite agile from a um uh, internal perceptions point of view so i think in one sense agile is the what was meant is probably more popular than waterfall but in terms of what people are trying yeah, that's probably true as well, or what they say they're doing. That's probably also true. But I don't think either of the, curiously, I don't think either of those is dominant. I think we're kind of, most people are in the middle space. They don't really have a name for what they're doing, although they borrow a name in water every scrub, now and then. Right? It's water scrub. Yeah. 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 Or well, actually, there was, a, there was a really good and very honest um, write up years ago. It was called the Whitewater Rafting Process. This is in communications of the ACM. And they took the idea of the waterfall and they kind of said, well, actually, working in a small company, it's more like whitewater rafting. And it's just like, and that was exactly the experience that I'd had in a small company. And it was, yeah, that's actually really good. And so it's not really agile. It's certainly fast moving, but it, it lacks the, uh, the intelligent directedness and reflection, perhaps, of agile and the wisdom of, uh, of, of reasoning about your practices and so on. Um, um, it borders on chaos, but not always in a positive way. But sometimes it works out. Um, but I thought the whitewater rafting metaphor was quite, was quite good. Another incarnation we have from the chat here from, from Garth Gilmore, who I was mentioning earlier. He says, right, Garth. 
<laughs> he says that one of uh, his friends worked for a company who claimed they had an iterative approach. Iteration one was requirements. Iteration two was design. And iteration three was coding. Yeah, yeah, I know. I you know maybe it's not the same. Maybe it's not the same company, Garth. But I had I remember one a piece of work I didn't get a few years ago. Somebody wanted me to 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 run a workshop at their company. Um, and honestly, this does sound like the deep past because it was actually at their company on site. Goodness, uh, physically co-located, me there, me with the people, and not socially distanced. I can't even remember that. Maybe I was just making it up. But um, but. We, I did not get the work and I did not pursue the work because they basically said, yeah, we want you to come in and we want you to talk about iterative and incremental development. I don't know if they use the word agile or not. I don't think they did. Um, and we, uh, and, uh, you know, iterative and incremental development, we want you to, you know, uh, workshop this for our people and we want it to follow our approach. And I said, oh, what's your approach? And it was kind of almost exactly what Garth just said. And I said, those are not iterate. That's not what the word iteration means, implies, or was ever there for. That, that's just like, you know, we just took the word phase and replaced it with the word iteration. Um, it's like a colleague of, you know, like a colleague of mine. I remember he had to give a, he had to give a management briefing on component-based development uh, many years ago. So he took his management briefing from a few years before on object-oriented development, just did a global search and replace the word object for component. You know, and that was it. You know, and, uh, and Mike just kind of tweaked a few other bits and pieces so the wording kind of fitted. And, and it's just like hmm, cynical yet insightful in one sense. Um, so we've sort of talked about the many um, faces of agile and agility. Um, so we have another question that's just come in today that says, do you think that technical agility relates to creativity? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, You know, so first of all, I'm going to say I had never thought about it like that. So thank you for that insight because I do, I think it does. I think it is linked to creativity I, or there's a, or rather technical agility does demand that. And I think that we are also, and one of the brandings that I'm not very keen on that I sometimes hear people talking about is that when developers are talking about UI designers, they will refer to the UI, UI designers as the creatives. Sometimes you get that within the organization, it's self-enforced. Um, and they say, oh, the creatives and the developers. It's just like, really? Development, software development is one of the most creative things that human beings do. And I, I get that from so many developers. They say, oh, I'm not creative. And that's because they're, in one sense, been straightjacketed into thinking, what does creativity mean? It means I need to be able to do a painting, play an instrument. In other words, very conventional forms. And I'm, I'm kind of of the belief that software development is one of those. You're creating something from nothing, really. There is, I'm, I'm going to create, I'm going to fabricate um, a whole internal life for this software. That's when you're doing, you're going to say, right, I'm going to follow this kind of paradigm, this approach. I'm going to organize uh, my modules um, to do various things, and I'm going to structure this. So there's the, there's the internal structure, and then I'm going to make it do something. You're, you're just going to take a freestanding universal computing device and make it do something. That is insane. When you, if you know, if you drop this one into a time machine to somebody decades ago, that they would just go, this is creative. This is hugely creative. How could it not be? Um, so software development is one of the most creative things that you can do. It, it's just that it doesn't normally stack up against the other arts because people have a conventional, because we have a long tradition in these other ones, that this newcomer to the block, people say, well, you know, just because you're good at playing a musical instrument does not mean that you're automatically good at composing poetry. Mm. Um, 
just because you're really good at software does not mean that you're, you know, uh, you, you know, you can't paint, but hey, you can do software development. I'm not creative. Good grief, that that that's not true. Uh, the so the question there is, it demands creativity in one sense. You are always thinking about new ways, new combinations, creative problem solving, but also creative exposition about how you choose to structure things, and that technical, and then actually, so I think that that's, I think that's in the subject matter. I think that's in the space. But that question is about technical agility. And that is really important. That's a very nice term that it, it's very specific, but it, it demands the, the original meaning of the word agility, um, that idea of being, there's a quick wittedness to it. There's, there's, there's a speed and a change of direction and a responsiveness and reading the situation and being able to create something that responds to that at a technical level. And I think when you frame it like that, it becomes obvious that to achieve that, it, it, it now wants the creativity. So I think we all go in it as creatives, but sometimes that's not recognized. But I think if you say, let's talk about technical agility, then I think that, that that's kind of like a, a public acknowledgement. Yeah, we need that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you are creative after all, come on in. You know, I think that that's where it's at because it, it's not a fixed set, it's an open set. That's what makes it so exciting. Um, it, it's that, that our canvas, that is, you know, that that's what's being played, what we've got to play out and figure out. I think also that's why we do see quite a bit of success with these self-organizing teams. I mean, you would never mandate to a great artist that they have to uh, produce their work in a specific way. I mean, we have this stereotypical and accepted impression of this crazy artist who just works their own hours and does their own thing and they produce these great things. Yet for something so creative, a lot of people are mandated how they need to spend their working hours and the framework works that they need to use. And I mean, it becomes natural then that they might have for a lot of people a wing clipping kind of effect. And when you do mm. give them that, that broader room to organize themselves, then you, you can see those, those amazing results or those better yeah. results that we are witnessing. So uh, I haven't seen any questions come through the chat for a while. We do have uh, a teeny tiny bit of time, so it's not too late. Throw some in. I do have the chat open. Um, so again, I'm going to ask a question that's uh, that it came up. It's part of your frequently asked questions, I'm sure. Um, but the question is, why 97? And the reason this is special to me is actually the number 97 has been my favourite number since early high school. I don't even know how it became my favorite number, but it is. So I'm really, really interested. Okay. So, I, so I'm going to ask a slightly random question here. Um, are you a synesthetic? You're putting me on the spot here because I don't know what that means. That's fine because you, you've <laughs> probably, yeah, that's absolutely fine. It, it's um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that some people know and some people, so synesthesia is, 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 is cross, um, cross sensory wiring. Um, mm. And, so uh, some people associate um, numbers with colors mm. or words with colors, that kind of thing. So that's a very particular kind of synesthesia. Other people um, associate um, uh, positions with um, sound or, again, they have a, a spatial it's, – it's different to spatial awareness, but they have a positional way of thinking about things. In other words, it goes beyond what is initially presented. Mm. So. So, um, uh, so yeah, I did honestly. I didn't know the word synesthetic until I discovered one day. Oh, that's you, Kevlin. Um, so for me, <laughs> ninety-seven actually has. It's actually quite a nice uh, combination of colours. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prime number. Um, 
it's uh, which is 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 true, but not necessarily useful in this case. Um, it's a really nice number. I, I I like it. It kind of feels mathematically kind of like oh, there's something the relationship between I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, it feels very comfortable. However, I didn't originally come up with the ninety seven constraint. Um, the first book in the 97 Things series uh, was by Richard Monson Hafel. And that was 97 Things Every Software Architect Should Know. And so I've been responsible for 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know. And um, I co-edited 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know uh, with Trisha G. And uh, the 97, and that, there's now been a whole load of other 97 Things books. It was kind of like, there was a little, there were three of them about 10 years ago, then a hiatus of nearly a decade. And then we've had a whole slew of these things coming through now. And the 97 was originally set by Richard. And it happened on um, Bruce Eccles. Uh, uh, he has a private programming list. And Bruce Eccles was perhaps better known for uh, books in the 90s and early 2000s, Thinking in Java. Um, and he wrote a number of these things. And I, I met Bruce on a number of occasions dating back that far, I guess. And so you get an odd lot of people, uh, a good cross-section of um, uh, folks from the industry who have had some, some influence. And, and Richard had to do a talk. He had to do a talk uh, that was 10 things every, and he'd already submitted the title, 10 things every software architect should know. And he, he went to the list. What, I mean, what a great piece of outsourcing and crowdsourcing. Hey guys, <laughs> I've, just got, I've just submitted this. What 10 should I talk about? Anyway, 30 suggestions later, he says, you know what? There's probably, I think there's even more here and we could probably do a book. And he went and had a chat with O'Reilly, but he sort of said, well, probably what would make sense is if each item is about two pages long, we have about a hundred items, but a hundred is, you know, that's yeah, who hasn't done a hundred things. So let's, let's choose another number. And he said 99 and 101 are trying, are too obviously trying not to be 100. It's yeah. kind of like, yeah, no, no, I'm not 100. I'm not, I'm not with him. No, 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 I'm, no, no. It's just coincidence. <laughs> Me, 99, I'm here, and so is 100. But 97's got just enough distance, but it's about the right order of magnitude. Um, so, so yeah, that's that is the that's the origin story of that. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. It is a great number, I, and I couldn't tell you why. And it's not just the color. It really feels like a. It's got a wholeness to it. Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple here. Highest two-digit prime number. I think that yep. was. Part of the reason it's a strong prime as well. If you want to go Google a strong prime, although you can't yeah. use it for the reasons that people use strong primes because it's a little bit low. <laughs> um, so let's go with one last question that just came through uh, the chat from Hamad. Uh, he asks, how do you think the pandemic will change the way agile is applied in the future? I think that is also, that's actually, that's a, that's a good question, Hamad, and I think it's actually a lot broader than what you're, Asking, I think it is. Um, it is how would it change our software development practices as a whole? Um, that what it's what it's done. So first of all, the one of the standard articles of faith um, historically in agile development was co-location, um, and some people have been pushing to distributed development, saying well, actually the practicalities of our company mean that we can't co-locate everybody uh, and so on. And this kind of gets mixed in with the scaling thing. Um, as well, I'm not going to say that scaling is never scaling up is never necessary, but sometimes people reach for that a little too soon. Okay, you know, so that it's available on the buffet, but don't go for it just yet. Yeah, um, um, I think that what's the the debate about the debate about do we do, can you do effective distributed development is dead. We, yes, you can. We've done that. Uh, people have done that for years. Open source software is based on a very decentralized and 
geographically um, a dislocated model anyway. Uh, it's just that people kind of like sort of say, well, there's proper software development, then there's those open source people. It's like, no, 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 there's software developers as well. Um, and he's had some kind of involvement there. And what it's done is it's brought these two disparate worlds together um, a lot more. We have also, we are at a technological stage that, um, honestly, hanging out with people face-to-face -face is, is always going to be one of the, the nicest things you can do. But the possibilities that we can actually continue doing our work um, uh, at least partially. So, you know, when the all clear is eventually given and we, we can all go back to our offices, I don't think we're going to all go back to our offices the way that we did before. I think that it is much more, I know a number of companies have spoken to me about the fact that they're saying, you know what, uh, the working from home and working in the office, the role of the office will change. That's where I go to see people. It's not necessarily where the work always happens. Mm -hmm. We historically have said, here's a geographical location where work happens. <laughs> And it also happens that we meet people and there's all that. What we may end up doing is saying that's where we meet people. And sometimes we do some work there, but that is not the only necessary place of work. That, I think that we are in that, we're at that point where the, the working from wherever you are has, yeah, yeah, it's the digital transformation people were talking about. There was a tweet going around last year, you know, who drove the digital transformation of your company? One, your CEO. Two, your CTO. Three, COVID-19, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, that captures it. So in other words, that fluidity, the fact that now we have got all of our tooling, this is this curious thing that software developers always get tarred with this brush of, oh, you know, software developers are not very communicative. They're all interest, introvert and this, that, and the other. And they don't, I do, I do writing as in creative writing. Honestly, you have no idea what a group of introverts is like unless you hang out with a bunch of writers. That, that's a properly introverted profession. Um, software developers are surprisingly gregarious, but if you think about it, they've been busy creating technologies for the last few decades to try and communicate. That's what they've been trying to do. Um, you know, hey, who invented email? That was a developer. So <laughs> the point there is that we've created all of these things and now we're actually able to use them. And so I think that we've been pushed from one extreme and we were kind of nudging towards a little bit more remote work and so on. And I, I, I know I've been remote working in some capacity for a very long time, but a lot of my other work has been definitely defined by it being on site. But, you know, people were nudging here and there and there's a little bit of movement here and there. It's like cashless as well. You know, a little bit of movement here and there, getting there. And then suddenly we've all been pulled over here. It's like, actually, no, you, you're not going into the office at all, all of you. And what we've all realized is, honestly, it was nice to see people, but I don't think it's going to go all the way back. I think that we're now here, that whatever we do is going to be, uh, is going to take that into account. And from an agility point of view, um, that that's where we kind of understand the, the individuals and interactions. Some of those interactions are going to be mediated and some of them are going to be physically co-located. Um, so I think that that is a huge, uh, I think that's a kind of like a, a, a huge thing there. Our tooling takes up the slack um, for a lot of the other things that we're able to do. We've now got a transparency there that's uh, that's uh, hugely, um, uh, hugely available. But I don't want to sound like some tech bro kind of talking about the future like this. I think the big challenge for agility is that idea, what agile development uh, in, in its more beneficial forms is about is people. And I think that's the that's the thing we have to pay attention to. That's the thing, um, that's the thing we really have to pay attention to. Uh, it's kind of from this point onward, 
we keep always talking about a level playing field and a meritocracy and all this kind of stuff. And actually, we're played with problems in in uh, in technology. And this is an op. We could go either way on this one. Um, uh, from this point on, and whether we are talking about diversity and representation, whether we are talking about mental health in the workplace, actually not being able to connect with people at the right level, that is a challenge that we have been given. So we're opening something up, but we're also, it's not a guarantee that just because it's available, that, that possibility is available, that it happens automatically, because all the other scenarios can happen. So I think that's the, that's the responsibility. It's that, um, I think the technology is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Um, although, you know, I say that, but every time I log on to a different piece of video conferencing software, it's just like, oh, you, you've ignored my default mic and all the rest of it. We, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a perennial printer problem, but now we've got more hardware choices. I think the technology bit, that's going along really quite nicely. We need to kind of go back and say, yeah, technology is about group intelligence. That's why we have teams. You to harness group intelligence. We need people who don't all think the same and we need to make sure that everybody's doing okay because everybody's in a different place geographically as well as uh, other situations in their life and we're accommodating that kind of but i don't think we're i think that that's that's the challenge um uh, for the next few years and that i think falls within the remit of what many people consider and why many people um were drawn to agile development is it has a kind of a, a slightly more human-centered approach um uh, from from its from its technological perspective, when we look at it from that through that lens. So I'm actually really fortunate uh, at Trifork Amsterdam is we're actually in the middle of moving uh, office and we'll get a brand new office uh, later this year. And they are actually asking for employee input as well. And personally, I think it's come at the perfect time because mm. we can completely design our office space for this new, to use your favorite word, working paradigm, where we might go home to get our headphones on work done, yeah. uh, but then come to the office to actually meet and collaborate and that yeah. way we design our workspace to reflect that with more whiteboards, more open spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So it'll be interesting. I'm really excited and I think I'm super lucky actually to just be in that fortuitous position of, of, of timing. But I'll let you know. Let Call me up in two years <laughs> if yeah. I'm optimistic. <laughs> but yeah. on that note, unfortunately, we have run out of time. There are a couple of questions still in the chat. Uh, I'm not going to volunteer your time for you, but maybe you can answer them in, in the comment section. One of them's Dylan. I think he's a he's a really good friend of yours, so maybe next beer or so. Um, but I would oh, like to Dylan, say, yes. Yeah. So I would like to say thanks to uh, Kevlin and also to our participants today. I've been keeping an eye on the chat. It's been nice uh, interaction. So really, thanks so much for that. Um, if you have liked what you've heard here, it actually isn't too late to join Kevlin's online masterclass, which starts tomorrow, Feb 18. Um, the topic is architecture with agility. And last minute signups are more than welcome. I mean, why not make lockdown work for you? You don't have to catch a flight. You don't need a hotel. So why not just be a bit spontaneous and sign up now for a training tomorrow? Um, and of of course, though, if spontaneousness isn't your thing or you have kids or whatnot, um, of course, there is always the go to Amsterdam conference uh, in June. Uh, 
one last uh, comment is uh, Kevlin Henny does have a Twitter page. Um, it's actually, he's quite active there. It's very, very good. Also a great repo if you uh, see some uh, bad software in the field or software errors in the field at your checkout counter or your, your uh, ATM machine, for example, always fun to, to tag him there. Um, now, Kevlin, just before I sign off, is there anything else you'd like to mention about your activities at the moment? No, honestly, if you want to find out where I'm going to be, um, you, know, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm probably more active on Twitter. Um, I will normally say, hey, guess what? You know, And these days, because we can be anywhere um, you know, uh, at any time, that's probably the place to find out. Because I normally do advertise, I'll retweet stuff. But normally at the beginning of every month, I say, hey, this is where I'm going to be this month if you want to catch me online. Uh, but also, you can you can at me or DM me on Twitter as well. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, communication I, I enjoy that honestly if i can't get it if i can't get it face to face and in the pub um then any other form of communication is also very welcome wonderful so look i'll just say thank you once again because i really have had uh, a blast over the last uh, hour or so really do thank you again kevlin for your time thank you very much adele wonderful uh thanks so much and uh i'm going to sign off for now as we say in the netherlands i'm just going to keep it short and say doey <laughs>